Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hey all, this is Glenn Kirshner and you're listening to Muller She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That's what he said. That's what I said. That's obviously what our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to Muller She Wrote. I'm your host, A.G. You can call me Allison Gill now. Uh, And today we have a very special, a very special episode of uh, Saved by the Bell, where Jesse gets addicted to caffeine pills. No, what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking about, first of all, later on in the episode, I'm going to be sharing with you the first of, I think, 10 or 11 episodes that we did in 2019 on Mueller, she wrote, to go over the Mueller report, volume one, line by line, um, which is the the Russian interference part of that report. Uh, but we do have a couple of stories to get to today, and joining me to discuss these stories is uh, Peter Strzok, author of the book Compromised. Get it if you don't have it. How's it going, Peter? It's going well. How are you doing? It's Friday. It's nice. Or I guess it's, it's 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 Sunday. Or do we do we not suspend disbelief that we're taping on the day of broadcast? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's Friday and then Sunday when you hear it. It's it's a whole weekend vibe. Excellent. And we're going to need the weekend vibes because there's some pretty angering things that we just found out. And this is the first thing I wanted to talk to you about um, from Free Speech for People. The headline here is, in a split decision, the FEC overrules career staff and refuses to investigate coordination between the Russian government and Donald Trump's 2016 campaign. Now, this story came out and the documents were released just uh, within the last couple of days. And the lead here is that the Federal Election Commission has released records revealing how partisan deadlock within the FEC blocked its investigation into potential coordination between former President Trump's 2016 election campaign and the Russian Federation. The nonpartisan professional career staff in the general counsel's office recommended the FEC find reason to believe that the Trump campaign violated the Federal Election Campaign Act by coordinating with the Russian government and soliciting and receiving illegal in-kind donations by the Russian government. And we all remember from the Mueller investigation, for example, the uh, June 2016 Trump Tower meeting, where the uh, the Mueller in the Mueller report, they they found that it didn't meet the burden of, you know, criminality. Uh, because, you know, there were questions about 
what the value of the opposition research that was never actually handed over had, if it had any value for an in-kind campaign contribution, and whether or not, well, you know, as we used to say, Junior is too dumb to crime, that he he did just didn't know uh, that it was illegal to accept um, opposition research from a foreign uh, adversary, foreign government. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about how the FEC gets these investigations? Do they die there if the if they're, you know, if they're deadlocked on it? Or can they be picked up by the Department of Justice? Or, uh, or is that considered some sort of weird Fourth Amendment double jeopardy thing? I'm not quite sure how the, the how this works. Yeah, so I'm, it's a great question. I'm not an expert on sort of the FEC regulations and rules. I know that, you know, as you indicated, we did look at it. Um, the Mueller the Mueller investigation looked at it, and there was some question exactly what you laid out about, the you know, not only the knowing that they were trying to do something that was against the law, but also the whole idea of what constitutes a something of value in, the, in a campaign uh, violation, finance violation sort of way. So, you know, is that polling data is, you know, if it is promised polling data that is never delivered, you know, those were difficult things to overcome in the context of particular criminal election laws. But then things get, you know, the FEC has, in my understanding, a whole separate set of sort of administrative laws and procedures that they look at and they can go after people in an administrative or civil context for violating these various laws, which DOJ and the FBI don't investigate or prosecute. And that's what it looks like happens here. And what's really interesting is you see, you know, these are all along with this announcement, which I is was remarkably quiet. And I assume it's, you know, Ukraine is, is everything in the news these days. But um, they had statements from the various members and it is split. I mean, it is there are Democrats and Republicans. And what it appears is that they were very, you know, they lay out their reasoning for voting how they did. And it what's interesting is that it's clear so you have these political appointees who are the commissioners and you have career staff who are nonpartisan people who've been there forever. And what is clear from these letters is that the career staff did recommend fighting against the Russian Federation and for the IRA for violating these various um, various regulations and that they were not pursued because then when it got to a vote at the partisan level, they didn't have enough votes to, to move forward in that context. But um, the letters are pretty pretty straightforward. And again, what I... But I place a lot of um, importance on, you know, of, of course, you know, a Democrat or Republican commissioner are, are going to say are going to say things that are will look, you know, potentially like their party affiliation. But when you see them saying we echo what the staff recommended, you know, we agree with the career professionals, that tells me that you know that's where the the truth lies, right? I mean, that's those are the folks who don't. Who aren't appointed there they're the ones who look at the precedent they're the ones who go out and investigate and make these determinations so that's why it's so very disappointing that these things were not pursued further by the fec and i think once it's done i mean you don't my understanding you don't wipe out on the commissioners so you still have a split so you still may not have the i think four votes they needed to to move forward now why release these documents now because the statute of limitations has expired and there's no that's a good question. I think it might have been for my uh, FOIA request, if I recall correctly, whoever this group is that uh, they release records, um, or maybe it is, I'd have to check on that. I, I don't know. I don't know if it was in response to a FOIA request or if it's just something that they ordinarily release. But they did, you know, they do talk about this guy, Taub, T-A-U-B, who was running up in uh, Rhode Island against um, Cicilline for for Congress, and that it came up probably two or three weeks ago. I think that 
his name, and it was probably around the time that these statements, um, maybe mid-February, that these statements were issued, essentially identifying him as the congressman who had reached out to, or the candidate for Congress who had reached out to Gusefer 2.0, who was, of course, a, a Russian intelligence front, to get information about Cicilline to help him. And Gusefer 2.0, it turns out, we have much more detail now through these documents, responded and gave very specific items of information, including, I think, some, some oppo, friendly oppo research that was done, in other words, like, a candidate when they're running frequently will have people go out and try and dig up what information is out there about themselves so that they understand where they might have vulnerabilities or where their opponents might attack them. And so through, it looks like through hacking into democratic entities, whether it's the DCCC or the DNC, they were able to obtain some internal democratic information about Cicilline that then, then shared with Tob. So, you know, there's some information there. And the point, of course, that is, you know, the Russians, it wasn't just Trump that they were helping, that they were involving themselves in uh, congressional elections as well. So it was much broader than I think people um, publicly talked about or knew about uh, earlier, certainly before the before the Mueller report and Senate report came yeah, out. Yeah, before they were spun and hidden and <laughs> sidelined. Right, for Bill Barr as he, as he launches into his book tour coming up. His um, rehab week, tour, yeah. His rehab tour, yeah. Um, yeah. Ex very excited to hear what he has to say about himself. Yeah, I'm excited to get it from the news and not buy the book. Um, so Campaign for Accountability, Executive Director Michelle Cuppersmith actually said about this, quote, the FEC never fails to disappoint. Even when it comes to Russian interference in, Amer in an American election, three commissioners couldn't bring themselves to vote to uphold campaign finance law. Congress needs to reform this broken agency. I concur with that. And uh, I'm always interested in what Weintraub and Broussard have to say. And you you have that document. Um, there were a couple of things, four things, I think, that um, that they discussed in, in their response. Yeah. And, and again, these are all what they found in supporting the staff attorney's recommendations. So again, these are the recommendations that the non-political personnel in the FEC brought forward to the commissioners to vote on. But they, you know, in this letter and, you know, it's online so you can read it, you know, we voted to find reason to believe that one, Trump and the Trump committee knowingly solicited, accepted, or received an in-kind contribution from the Russian Federation in connection with Trump's, if you're listening, comment. Two, the Trump committee knowingly solicited an in-kind contribution from WikiLeaks. Three, an unknown congressional candidate, Prince Taub, knowingly solicited, accepted, or received a prohibited in-kind foreign national contribution. And four, Paul Manafort and the Trump Committee knowingly solicited a prohibited in-kind foreign national contribution and transferred a campaign committee asset without charge. So, you know, you can, those, the underlying facts there, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners are, you know, can trace it back to the, certainly Trump's are, you know, if you're listening, comment, Manafort's provision of the, the campaign data to via Konstantin Kalimnik to, to Deripaska and others, presumably, but you can track down the facts supporting those broad uh, things that they voted to find, you know, violated FEC rules and regulations. And the sad part is it, it's pretty clear they did, and hence the you know the kind of concern with the with the uh, whether or not the FEC has any tooth to the policies and regulations that they're supposed to be enforcing. Well, yeah. Again, when we don't think about the fact that the person in the White House who appoints these folks or has some sort of dominion over what they do and how they vote, 
when that person is the corrupt person, then it, it you know, the, the fish rots from the head, so to speak. And, and you know, it goes back to the same discussion we've had over and over and over again. You find these things. Who do you tell if the president of the United States is the criminal? Um, or, you know, uh, at least a, a friendly uh, of the criminals. It's, what do you do? Um, and, and, and this is, the I think, the problem that we keep running into and will continue to run into unless we make these reforms. Yeah, agreed. And I don't think, you know, part of the issue is I don't think we're going to get there with this Congress for sure. And I don't know about this administration. I mean, they're, if we're lucky, I think we get some reform to the Electoral Count Act and that would go a long way to, you know, hopefully shoring up some of the nonsense we saw specifically on January 6th. But when it comes to broader systemic reforms, I just don't think there's enough time and legislative um, ability to get much done in that regard. So, yeah, it, it doesn't matter so much now because you have a, a, a rule following administration, but I don't see that there's a lot that uh, the FEC would be able to do in the future, anything greater than what they were unable to do here. Um, whether it's a, another Trump administration or you know somebody else who seeks to sort of abuse the the rules that the FEC is supposed to uphold. Yeah, I wish we could put a buffer between the president and the FEC, like we have at the post at the post office. You know, like we have a board of governors, <laughs> and that that's the only group of people. But then, of course, the president appoints the yeah, board of governors. Yeah, and DeJoy still <laughs> still there. So yeah. So. Yeah, still waiting for those final two to be seated that Biden nominated. I just keep trying to refresh that. Like, when is that happening? Um, and then the next story I, I want to touch on today, um, Pete, who among us hasn't hired a documentary film crew to document us doing a coup? I mean, who who among us? Um, well, uh, the answer is is Roger Stone. There's a really pretty incredible piece out from the Washington Post, uh, I think it was today or yesterday, um, just right before the weekend, uh, about things that this documentary film crew found. And, you know, you had put out a tweet, hey, I wonder if the DOJ, FBI has these, they have screenshots and and, and uh, film shots of, of phone screens of Roger Stone on Signal. And, and it's, uh, there's just so much in here. What are your top line thoughts after reading this report? Well, it's kind of crazy because it appears that this film crew did follow them around for several months. Um, they went prior and around the election, they went back overseas. They're a European film crew, and then it looks like they came back on or about inauguration date, but were following Stone in particular when he was in town on the January 5th and 6th. And you know, a couple of things. One, you know, Stone was clearly aware that they were taping him. So a lot of times I think his statements are going to be very self-serving and probably disingenuous in a lot of ways. But at the same time, anytime you give somebody that much access, you're inevitably going to you know, not be aware of things that you are showing and or that you inadvertently say or do. And one of the things that leapt out at me was they've got a, early on in the article, they've got this screen, they've got a clip or a screen grab picture from the documentary and it's stone sitting in a car i think and he's holding a phone it looks like an iphone but it, who knows what it is but it's signal and he's got the signal app open and you can go there and it's high enough resolution that you can see all these people that you know like if you use signal you can get you know any it's a messaging service so you have all the various parties that you're talking to and you can read it so stone has it up and you can see there's the top line is a fos with a message 10 4 that appears to be unread there's new pastor mark burns with an unread message saying brother i just found out about something you have a guy named steve 
then a Tyler, Tyler Nixon, Tyler Mixon, an HRE of tremendous interest to me, certainly an unread message from Joel Greenberg saying, I'm available anytime standing by. Then you have Palm Beach Patriots PAC, Enrique Tario, Greg Lewis, and then finally Stuart Rhodes down at the bottom. So again, this is these folks were filming this, and this is one frame from presumably what they're they're filming. And so even if you know that wasn't there's information there, but then the question is if you're making a documentary, you know these people have followed Stone around for months and months and months, and so presumably there's a tremendous amount of um, film of media that didn't make the cut into whatever the final product was and you know in the in the article i think they say they saw something like 20 hours but i guarantee you they have more than that but kind of the immediate thing was well okay so signals an encrypted app it's overseas you know it can be some information can be obtained via subpoena search warrant it's not clear what if anything after the fact can be obtained content wise and by that i mean reading the actual texts or the content of those text messages back and forth so what's very interesting, and there's some indication, I think Stuart Rhodes, there's some allegation that he, in his Signal account, deleted messages or deleted the app or did something to remove data from Signal. Um, but to the extent that, you know, you and me and everybody else who can log on or pick up a Washington Post and, and pull up that picture and read uh, Stone's messages, it's clearly, you know, interesting to us. But certainly if you're an investigator, to get all of that and sit there and see, you know, not only, hey, what was Stone, you know, can we read what he was reading when they were filming him with his phone, but everything like that, right? You know, if he's mm -hmm. having a conversation on the phone that doesn't sound interesting to a filmmaker, well, if you're a investigator or a prosecutor and you have a certain time, a conversation that may not be of interest to a filmmaker, if you're a prosecutor and know that Stone at some given point in the time was talking to somebody who was up on the Capitol breaking in, and you can suddenly that conversation might be far more relevant to something you're trying to prove or understand. So my thought reading this was immediately, okay, if I'm an investigator, I would love, I would need, I would do everything in my power to get this information. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe they have already gotten this and maybe agents and investigators and prosecutors already have this information. I have no idea. They're a foreign film crew. So presumably, you know, their media protections that attach to them, they're not in the US. They may have, you know, a desire to cooperate and voluntarily provide it. They may say, well, no, just give us something to legally protect us, give us a subpoena, so we'll turn it over to you. Or they may choose to fight it, in which case um, there's going to be a longer process to try and get it. But there's one, there was that that was interesting, but I mean, I'll let you talk about all the other stuff that was in the article. There's, there's, it was a really, uh, is a fascinating article. You know, my dream come true is that the film crew is actually FBI. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, seen, I've often wondered, like, could the actual, just the act of using signal to commit crimes be considered obstruction of justice, knowing intentionally that that stuff is going to delete itself? That's an interesting uh, new technological thing that's never been litigated. But uh, of interest, you know, you bring up that phone screenshot with Stuart Rhodes. We just had Stuart Rhodes, like number two right hand man, flip and start cooperating with the government. He was charged with seditious conspiracy and obstructing an official proceeding, among other things. He he actually pled guilty to those two huge charges uh, and seditious conspiracy included and it, it, and is cooperating. Uh, and he had 
very tight communications and, and with both Stone and Rhodes, and he might have information. And then we also know Roger Stone is suing the January 6th committee to prevent them from getting his phone records because they're, you know, in that article, the Washington Post article, there was a 90 minute gap where he wouldn't let the film crew film him because you said, you know, he's very aware he's on camera. And he's in his room and they're like, no, he's taking a nap, but he was actually on the phone. Right. So and and so he's suing to prevent phone records now. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's crazy the amount of information that that is there. And, you know, to the whole point of like he is very his statements sound entirely self-serving before and after the the attack on the Capitol. He's like, oh, this is a horrible. It's a bad idea. It's going to undermine the movement. But yet. So, of course, you know, when he's talking to the camera crew while the film is rolling, he is going to say, one set of things, whether intentionally or not. I mean, I would argue that, you know, my assumption is that was completely, you know, probably not accurate and very much self-serving to try and paint himself in a, in a, uh, in an innocent light. That's my opinion. Um, but I think the fact that, you know, there's this huge gap at the height of the attack on the Capitol that he, you know, is napping. And in reality, he's, you know, the, the guy, I think they, they, the filmmaker like snuck in with room service and found him like sitting there on the phone instead of, you know, curled up with a you know pillow and a blanket so who knows what was going on during that time but his nicks his nicks and will be yeah exactly exactly to yeah whatever helps him have sweet dreams but there's there's a lot i think to come and certainly if you have the folks you know james is a big deal and the fact that he he's the he's the you know one of the guards who was or the oath keeper who was with him for a lot of the time and if he is very um cooperative and provides a lot of information um, you know, that puts you into Stone's inner circle. So I think that's a that's a huge deal. Um, and the other incident. Generally, don't you get the grand jury testimony before you make the plea, the pleading or is some? I mean, I would. I mean, some of it's going to be like you'll you'll typically do what's called a, a, a proffer session or, you know, they call it queen for a day where you go in and the government will want to know. I mean, you can do at least there are a variety of ways you can do it, right? But one way would be if you're a good defense attorney, you're going to come in and say, hey, my client wants to plead. He's going to cooperate. Here are the things if we can reach a plea agreement, like if you cut him a good enough deal, he's prepared to tell you about one and two and three and four and five. And in some cases, the government will say, okay, well, then that's fine. Then, you know, we have your word that he's going to cooperate. And if he doesn't cooperate, then that that's going to nullify the plea agreement. Sometimes the government will say, all right, well, we want a little more meat on the bone. So let's talk about before we do it, you know, and or some of this is, you know, we want to hear what he has to say about one and two and three and four and five, or we want to get him into a grand jury where he can testify about one, two, three or four or five. And then so part of that is one to get a little information on the front end from this defendant. Some of it is too when you go to the judge and you're trying to argue that there should be a sentence reduction that you want to show cooperation and it doesn't, you know, again, I, I am not an expert at all by sentencing guidelines and how, you know, what what downward departure, how that varies based on the type of cooperation, but there is one thing to say, my client has agreed to cooperate versus my client has testified in the grand jury, which has led to indictments of three parties, and he's going to be testifying at these trials, because that sort of cooperation is much more substantive. And so when it comes to what that downward departure might look like, that sort of substantive cooperation is going to carry more weight than sort of the promise of, you know, pay today for a hamburger tomorrow sort of thing. 
Yeah, and I think it was interesting when I was listening to the hearing, the judge was like, you're also, under, you know, I have to go through all the rights that he's waiving when he pleads guilty. He says, you know that also that the that I, the judge during sentencing can apply an upward departure on, on these particular crimes. And I think that's what probably for terrorism um, or, or, you know, just the, <laughs> it's a fucking coup, uh, you know, whatever it is um, within the guidelines. So I, and he was like, yep, yep, nope, I know that. But, uh, you know, the feeling is somewhere between eight and 10 to 11 years um, and where he was facing 20, uh, maybe concurrently with both charges, uh, maybe consecutively. I'm not sure. I'm not an expert at sentencing either. But it, it seems like, you know, first to flip uh, in this seditious conspiracy case. And this could also be important to other potential seditious conspiracy charges in other groups like the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters because there was apparently coordination between these three groups. And there are still persons, one, out there for those other two groups that, that haven't been charged. And so, you know, I think we might see a pattern here for seditious conspiracy. But also of note, the obstructing an official proceeding, because if you're building a case with this new information that we got from the 1-6 committee about uh, Donald Trump and John Eastman obstructing an official proceeding, 1512C2, and you have all the underlings that were sent out to, 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 to do it, pleading guilty to that, that can help bolster the case against the, the, the hub of the hub-and-spoke conspiracy. And so this is, I, I'm with you, this James thing is, is very big, the phone records thing is big, the 90-minute gap is, is big, but it's, it's still, we're... It's still going to take a while. And, you know, I, I keep thinking about you and the things that we've discussed before about Department of Justice coming out and talking about the resources and the urgency and, the, the, you know, stuff that they haven't really done. And I've seen 20 tweets in the last three days about the klepto capture program, uh, but nothing about the task force investigating the January 6th coup. Right. And I don't, and, and again, you know, you look at what was interesting, you know, how many times did Biden talk about January 6th during the State of the Union? didn't talk about it at all, right? So the question is, if you're, you know, and I'm, I'm certain that was a question or a debate at some point, and I'm sure that's something that he either said proactively or somebody asked him, and, you know, the sense is I want to, you know, move past that. I want to focus on Ukraine. I want to focus on, you know, things other than, you know, this, the, the coup attempt that our nation is still investigating. So I don't, you know, that's a political decision, obviously, and I, I think he would be, what you don't want is the, you know, what we saw last administration, the president going on and giving a bunch of comments about ongoing criminal investigations isn't something we need in our country. And so I guess he was, he was wise not to, you know, even potentially, you know, certainly not to go into any detail about it, but there was not a, that, that there, there was not, the question I have is whether or not the, what the White House wants DOJ to do, not that they would make them do it or encourage them one way or the other, but there are subtle ways to kind of nod one way or nod the other. And it was it was very interesting to me that there was not there was there was not at all a focus. There's nothing even even pointing that I don't think. Um, no, and my and my con that's I had a, that concern because I'm saying you know we, we Putin wouldn't be in power for 22 years if if he hadn't successfully pulled the shit that Donald tried to pull last year. We are following down that path of that, and it's connected. It's all connected. Preserving democracy here at home is is essential for preserving democracy abroad. Uh, and and how that how how that is possibly not connected is is beyond. Yeah, me. yeah. No, I agree. Um, and I don't, I mean, we'll see. I think this clearly, you know, typically you can take, 
enter into a plea agreement with somebody just because, you know, it serves the, you know, it serves the deterrent effect of, you know, punishing the person. They have their the punishment for their crime. It saves government resources and that you're not going to have to go investigate them further. But typically for for somebody who's done something so serious to plea, you really want something in return. So, you know, to your point, yeah, it could be these other cells, but I really do think um, in the case of, um, in, in this case with, with James, it is to get to Stone. It is to look at the, the leadership of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and Stone and Ali Alexander. So, you know, I, I... Well, at least Stuart Rhodes, right? That's probably the main... Right, although James you know, James is riding goal, around. Cause... I want to say James is riding around the, the, the fifth and the sixth with Stone, if I'm not mistaken. He right? was, so he, he was. He was he there. Was. So it... being able to sit there and say, you know, what was he, you know, he wasn't napping. So what was he doing during those 90 minutes? Who did he meet and what was decided? Um or what did Stuart Rhodes tell you that he talked yeah, to Stone exactly, about? Exactly, exactly. And then one, I'll just, you know, there's a whole other fascinating, probably beyond the scope of our discussion, the the pardon for hire business, which apparently is is legal, that, you know, you can pay people to lobby the White House and president to get you a pardon. And Roger Stone was deep in that. But what was really interesting, I saw obviously Joel Greenberg showing up is really interesting because he was pursuing a pardon. And there was a recent, he should have been, if memory serves, he should have been sentenced by now. And there was a filing at some point down in Florida where everybody's waiting to see what's going on with Matt Gates. where the, I just saw somebody make this comment on Twitter that there's this odd comment from the Department of Justice, essentially words to the effect of Greenberg continues to cooperate and his cooperation has take us, taken us in directions we didn't anticipate. That's not exactly what they said, but that was the idea. And so now the question is, you look at this and you say, okay, well, he's sitting here talking with Roger Stone on January 5th and 6th. Is, there, is that a reference or an allusion to a stone angle potentially? Now, maybe it is, you know, there could be a hundred other things. Obviously, I think everybody's interested in what, you know, Matt Gates was doing with a bunch of, you know, his, his alleged potential you know, uh, underage uh, girlfriends and things that might have been going on. But if there's a stone angle and a January 6th angle of this, you know, that that might explain that comment, too. Yeah, true. And and his sentencing was pushed back twice, supposed to be in November, and then it was pushed back to March of 2022, which is in a, a couple weeks, I think. I, I And so we'll find out whether they're going to push it back again. But it seemed when they pushed it back to March that they thought a trial and an indictment would be done with Gates. So then you could finally sentence Greenberg. But we just don't know. It's been very quiet out of the Middle District of Florida these last couple of months. Can I can I, can I I read the quote that Stone said about Jared Kushner, or do you want to save that for another episode? No, so do it. Do fantastic. It. So he's talking to this guy named uh, Alejandro, who I forget who Alejandro is. That's his uh, last name. Uh, and he says, quote, in two weeks, he's moving to Miami, Stone told Alejandro before whispering. He's going to get a beating. He needs to have a beating and needs to be told, this time we're just beating you. Next time we're killing you. Where the filmmakers were nearby, Alejandro urged Stone to say he was joking. No, no, it isn't joking. Not joking. It's not a joke, Stone replied. So something to, you know. What's he talking about? What's, what Cooter's going to Oh, because, oh, so all that's coming from. So the, the basis for all that was Stone believed that he had pardons lined up for him, for Bernie Carrick, another one, right, for, for other crimes, and that it came through that uh, Manafort got a pardon, but he had not. And uh, 
in, in that regard, it said the decision enraged Stone, who called Bannon a, quote, grifter scumbag, unquote, and two expletives while he was filmed. But his his belief that Kushner was behind all of that, that whatever was going to go through on the pardon front would have to have Jared on board. And that because it didn't go the way that he expected or wanted it to, that therefore Jared was to blame and hence needed his, what was the phrase, needed to get a beating. And the next Stone time- later be killed yeah yeah stone and then also later stone said kushner needed to be quote punished in the most brutal possible way unquote and would be quote brain dead when i get finished with him so there you go the best and the brightest yeah he's got a thing for witness intimidation i remember with with him and credico and credico's dog yeah didn't didn't the dog die uh, yeah, maybe, but not at Stone. Not, 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 not <laughs> right. Not contemporaneously, but more recently. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, anyway, uh, fascinating story. Everybody check out the Washington Post report and also get the book Compromised by Pete Strzok. And if you want to get a little bit more in, and this is cool because this is a flashback. This is a 2019 flashback going over the version of the volume one of the Mueller report that we had in 2019 um, that, that, uh, that Pete worked on. And uh, we're going to talk, we just want to get the Russia, we just want to get volume one out there again, uh, because (laughs) I think a lot of people have forgotten um, or never knew in the first place. So we're going to put that out here. If you want to stick around and listen to that, you're welcome to. Uh, Otherwise, Pete, thanks for joining me today. Great. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too, everybody. Please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, and take care of your mental health. I've been AG, and this is Muller She Wrote. Hello, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Together, we host the Spy Talk podcast. Every week, we delve into the worlds of intelligence, foreign policy, military operations, and the intersection of all three in national security issues. Spycraft, cybersecurity, violent extremism, whether at home or abroad, technology's impact on intelligence gathering. We cover it all and much more. We interview former spooks, military officers, government officials, journalists, and national security researchers, leveraging our backgrounds in military intelligence and homeland security, along with our decades of experience as journalists and news organizations like Newsweek, The Washington Post, and CNN. So join us every Thursday for a new episode of Spy Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. of the oldest profession. I'm a capitalist. Hello and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. This is part one of the Mueller She Wrote special coverage of the Mueller Report. Uh, I'm your host, A.G. With me as always are Jaleesa Johnson. Hello. And Jordan Coburn. Hello. And I'm excited. We're going to do a deep dive and page by page into the Mueller Report. Uh, Probably a 10-part series could end up being 11 or 12, depends on how long this goes and how redacted it is. I tried to do a great breakdown of it, but so far, we'll see. I mean, things can come up, news stories drop that could elongate some of the episodes, and we want to get every single piece of this for you. Because this shit's not over. No, it's so far from over. These episodes will be released every Thursday evening in our main feed for you. So uh, we hope that you enjoy them. Share them with people. Uh, You don't need to be a patron to get this. These are public episodes. Share them with people who you think need to read the Mueller report that might not have read it, which is probably everybody since uh, only 3% of people have read it, except you guys. I I bet you guys all read it. So 
Um, please feel free to share it with anyone who, who you say, hey, you want to be entertained and hear what's on the Mueller report? Here you go. Uh, today we're going to go over the first 13 pages of Volume 1, including the introduction, the executive summary of Volume 1, and Section 1 titled The Special Counsel's Investigation. So uh, let's get right into the introduction, you guys. The opening statement is sobering, and it says the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in a sweeping and systematic fashion. Mueller confirms that the Russians hacked the DNC and released the hacked materials through WikiLeaks in July, October, and November of 2016. Mueller also confirms that the investigation into whether Trump coordinated with Russia was opened after a foreign government contacted the FBI regarding an encounter with Papadopoulos in May of 2016. This is important because we know that Trump and his minions like Nunes and Jim Jordan and Tim Meadows and countless of his supporters would have you believe that the investigation was opened on the Steele dossier, and that's simply not true. Do you think that's officially a dead theory? No, they, people still say that. I God damn it. I've heard it less for sure, but I cannot wait until the day that that's an unacceptable thing to say. Yeah, I know. It's pretty dumb. Uh, and when they say a foreign government contacted the FBI, uh, I'm going to go ahead and assume that's Australia. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, because it was Alexander Downer who heard Papadopoulos popping off at the top of this uh, oh. esophagus <laughs> in the pub in England about... His interactions with Mifsud. Yes, right? spitting that hot fire, AG. <laughs> I totally stole it from Flight of the Concords, but thank you. All right, guys, then the report goes on to say that Mueller has determined Russia interfered with the elections and did so through two principal operations. First was the social media campaign that involved the Internet Research Agency, which we'll call the IRA, um, Russian troll farms, Concord management, and the like, basically favoring Trump and disparaging Clinton. Second, of course, is the hack and release operation of the stolen documents. Uh, the report also concludes that there were several links between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. Hmm. Several links. There were several links. And yeah. we'll go over them all in detail for you. Uh, but now I'd like to take you back a minute to March 24th, when Bill Barr decided to write the four-page letter summarizing the two-year Mueller investigation in less than 48 hours. Um, <clears throat> in that letter, not one full sentence from this report existed. But there was one sentence, the one that Barr used to draw his conclusion that there was no collusion, and it seemed to be taken out of context. And the hint that it was taken out of context for us, and we talked about this right after the Barr summary dropped, was that the no conspiracy sentence began in Barr's letter with a capital T in brackets, mm-hmm. which indicates that the lower in the original Mueller report, there was a lowercase t which indicates to us that the sentence had an entire beginning part that was totally removed. So what Barr used in his letter went like this, quote, The investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. And that's the, that he, that's a part of a sentence that he used. The actual sentence, as written in the Mueller report, goes like this. <clears throat> and this is good. Quote, Although the investigation established that Russian government per, that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome, and that the Trump campaign expected it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump <laughs> campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government yeah. and it's an election interference real activities. Real smooth, Barr. Real yeah. smooth. Barr just didn't like run on sentences. That was the problem. Oh, that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. It was probably too confusing for him to understand it. Right. Yeah, to follow that it's many clauses along, that's hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so uh, instead of, uh, Mueller says there's no coordination. It's like, although there was a shitload of meetings and tons of wrongdoing, there was no 
<laughs> coordination or conspiracy. Mm-hmm. That's a front-heavy sentence. It really is, and he removed the entire front. <laughs> and also notice the word collusion doesn't appear anywhere in that sentence, uh, and that um, there was an entire setup, like I said, that Barr just sort of left out. And we know based on a story uh, about a 1989 Office of Legal Counsel memo he wrote, Barr wrote, and then later summarized for Congress, Barr has a history and a propensity for leaving out the important bits. The 1989 memo he wrote basically allowed the U.S. to abduct a foreign person on foreign soil without alerting the foreign state. And he did this pretty much to pave the way for a possible kidnapping of Manuel Noriega in Panama, where President Bush was calling for a coup. Uh, Barr then said he promised to summarize his memo to Congress, which he did. And when the actual memo was subpoenaed, it became clear that Barr did then exactly what he tried to do a month ago or a couple months ago now and completely downplayed the seriousness of the findings by omitting consequential details to provide cover for the president okay and uh, he should be held accountable for withholding the information from the public oh definitely i'm starting to realize though that maybe trump hired Barr because like you know how comey and mccabe had their memos and really pissed trump off he's like they're making up these memos and just means nothing and no, no credibility he's like oh i got memos now yeah. i need a memo guy I need a memo guy <laughs> who's the most assholery memo guy in the business <laughs> that was a craigslist post <laughs> yes. ask him what his strength was and he said negligence and i said <laughs> perfect <laughs> also his weakness <laughs> missed connections yeah. you were the attorney general who wrote a shitty 1989 summary about a office of legal counsel uh memo about manuel noriega i saw you we met eyes I forget your name. Who are you? I need you to be the attorney general. <laughs> oh, man. They took those away from Craigslist. They're no longer know, on there. Sucks. Yeah. It's probably so, for the best. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I like that part. It's probably getting creepy. It's very fun for everyone else that was not involved. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I loved reading through them. Yeah. In college, we wouldn't go out. We'd get drunk and read those. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Totally. <laughs> I know. And I would always see if I was in there. Do you ever like, go in there and see? Oh. I wonder if someone saw me across the karaoke bar. <laughs> With a glass of wine and my cat shirt. You know, whatever. (laughs) I love it. No, I was never on there. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. Where do we go from here? Oh, then the Mueller report just kind of gives a roadmap for understanding the report and the underpinnings of the results and Mueller's charging decisions. And I'm just going to read this to you so that you have a clear understanding about the structure of the findings and how they're presented, which I think is incredibly important uh, to apply to the full report as we move forward discussing both volumes. So remember where we're at on the timestamp in this so that you can understand the mission of the report. Because whenever I do uh, have a task or a project, I always go back to the mission to understand what the main underpinnings and, and reasons for me doing something are. Um, and so if you write down the timestamp here, this is the, basically the mission of the Mueller report. Below, we describe the evidentiary considerations underpinning statements about the results of our investigation and the special counsel's charging decisions. And then we provide an overview of the two volumes of our report. The report describes actions and events that the special counsel's office found to be supported by the evidence collected in our investigation. In some instances, the report points out the absence of evidence or conflicts in the evidence about a particular fact or event. In other instances, when substantial, credible evidence enabled the office to reach a conclusion with confidence, the report states that the investigation established that certain actions or events occurred. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. (laughs) Very important. I'm going to read that again. A statement that the investigation did not establish particular facts does not mean there was no evidence of those facts. Typically not something you'd see in a document, I imagine, unless you are anticipating people will interpret it in the other way. (laughs) Totally. 
Uh, in evaluating whether evidence about collective action of multiple individuals constituted a crime, we applied the framework of conspiracy law, not the concept of collusion. Uh, in so doing, the office recognizes that the word collude was used in communications with acting attorney general, confirming certain aspects of the investigation's scope, and that the term has frequently been invoked in public reporting about the investigation. But collusion is not a specific offense or theory of liability found in the United States Code, nor is it a term of art in federal criminal law. For those reasons, the office's focus of uh, analyzing questions of joint criminal liability was on conspiracy as defined in federal law. In connection with that analysis, we addressed the factual question whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated a term that appears in the appointment order with Russian election interference activities. Like collusion, coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an an agreement, tacit or express, between the Trump campaign and the Russian government on election interference. That requires more than the two parties taking actions that were informed by or responsive to the other's actions or interests. So what he's saying there is that it's not it's not just about two parties taking actions. Um, they have to have a tacit or express agreement. Mm-hmm. We applied the term coordination in the same sense when stating in the report that the investigation did not establish that the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Then uh, so that's that's the mission there. That's the whole kind of structure and mm-hmm. underpinning. Then there are two brief paragraphs outlining sections of the two volumes, which we will cover as we go. Uh, And then page four moves on to the executive summary to volume one. And I think these executive summaries are the summaries that Mueller's team prepared for the public that they asked five times for Barr Mm -hmm. to share with the public. And he never did. Um, But I'm not certain that separate ones weren't written. We still Mm kind of don't know. Yeah, that was a bit vague. I always wanted to see those summaries. These might be them. There might be other summaries. Um, but we know that Barr refused to hand out his summaries, even after they were fully redacted and handed to them in an envelope on the third time they asked or the fourth time they asked. And then we've seen that letter from Mueller to Barr saying, I don't like the way you characterize my shit, bro. Here's the summaries. Release these. And he still didn't. Um, and we still haven't heard from Mueller. So that's kind of where we are right now. Oh, what a shitty limbo. <laughs> I know. It's a weird place to be in. Um, The first section to the executive summary is about the Russian social media campaign. What's interesting to me in this section is that there are redactions for things that could cause harm in an ongoing matter in relation uh, to the Internet Research Agency. Um, Prigozhin, that's Putin's chef, and he's also the guy who runs Concord Management. I love how that's the first descriptor we use for him. (laughs) Putin chef? Putin chef. (laughs) Yeah, like nothing else, like murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Chef. (laughs) Le poisson. We give credit where it is due. (laughs) Uh, I think they call him that because he runs Concord Management and Concord Catering, and he provides all the meals to the Russian military. (laughs) So he's the chef. Uh, I've had military food, wouldn't call you a chef. (laughs) Um, these redactions are probably about the Concord management case, which is still being fought in court to be able to get he, they want all the Mueller evidence uh, in discovery, which would they would then immediately hand over to the Kremlin. And Mueller is fighting that request. Um, this is a court case, by the way, where it seems Concord management hired American lawyers and um, they pursued this case in the U.S. just pretty much to be able to get documents from Mueller. And when they couldn't. They forged their own, set up an anonymous Twitter account and disseminated their fake documents, claiming they hacked Mueller. God. Um, that's a Jacob Wool move. If yeah, I've ever heard it's of. so desperate. I know, right? Like, did you have a LinkedIn profile too, <laughs> with pictures of models and your mom's phone number? Yep. Um, this is the same court case, by the way, where the judge was fed up with some of the methods employed by the lawyers for Concord Management, the American lawyers, because they were dropping f bombs and quoting Bugs Bunny cartoons. 
uh, in their court filings. But in any case, I'm guessing those uh, Internet Research Agency redactions are for the Concord management battle that's still in the court. But it could also mean there could be more Russian indictments coming. We just don't know. Uh, But we do know Hillary's personal email was targeted after Trump called for Russia to find her missing emails. And maybe there's more indictments coming for that. Yeah, definitely. And as we learned later on in the Mueller report, no spoilers, uh, (laughs) because we'll get there. There are definitely other entities. Yes, that's for sure. And it's yeah, it's weird. It's like, are there more Russian indictments coming? There could be. So if you're playing the Fantasy Indictment League on the main episode, you might want to throw some Russian randos. Uh, or just a rando, I guess that that kind of encompasses Russians. That's a good strategy. Yep. All right. So the report goes on to describe the social media disinformation campaign and says the Internet Research Agency used social media accounts and interest groups to sow discord in the United States through information warfare. It favored Trump and it disparaged Clinton. Uh, and we'll get into the details of that later in the report. We get way into the details of yeah. that. All right, guys, then we get to the executive summary of the Russian hacking operation. And Mueller confirms that GRU, which is the main intelligence directorate of the general staff of the Russian army, carried out the hacking. They began hacking in March 2016, targeting Clinton campaign staffers and John Podesta, as well as the DNC and DCCC. They stole hundreds and thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of documents, hundreds and (laughs) And dozens and thousands. (laughs) Add it all together, you get a couple hundred thousand and some twelves. You're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, hundreds of thousands of documents and disseminated the stolen material through fake online personas known as DC leaks and Gucci for 2.0. And then later through WikiLeaks. God damn. That that will still never be something that fully sinks in that an entire intelligence unit of a government put everything behind this. Yeah. That's insane. Isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. And and when you no spoilers, but when we get in deeper into the report, it talks about all the different leased computers that they paid money for by mining, like stealing Bitcoin. And like Mm -hmm. there are some in Arizona. It gets crazy. Yeah. It just it gets crazy. Yeah. So stick around for part three, (laughs) which is after part two. (laughs) Every. (laughs) okay, Rebecca Black. (laughs) Time is linear. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Let's see. Mueller found the Trump campaign showed interest in WikiLeaks. Uh, and interest in their releases and welcomed the damage to Clinton. Cool guy. Mm-hmm. Totally legal. Totally cool. Yeah, seems fine. Totally fine. Uh, every time WikiLeaks is brought up in this report, we see a lot of redactions indicating there could be harm to an ongoing matter. And that's likely the Roger Stone and Assange cases. Um, then we get to probably one of the most famous lines in Russian collusion. You hear it in our opening sequence every week. And the Mueller report says, quote, Trump announced he hoped Russia would recover emails described as missing from a private server used by Clinton when she was Secretary of State. He later said he was speaking sarcastically. And then nearly three full lines of redaction for harm to an ongoing matter. And I'm thinking that's that maybe a future Russian indictment. Yeah, I hope so. And also, how can he... What else would he claim he's speaking sarcastically on if he was actually held accountable for it? He does this all the time. I was just joking. Feed? Yeah. I was just joking. About, exactly. Could you just be joking about being president then? And leave? Oh, God, please. I was just joking. I'm out of here. He's just a real good comic. (laughs) Committed to the bit. It is. It's one of those, uh, who was the guy with the other guy that pretended to be the guy? They did a movie called Man on the Moon. Oh, uh, Jim Carrey? No. He was in it. Okay, Andy And he Kaufman? played Andy Kaufman, yeah. yeah and yeah, he had that yes. set, that persona. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. And they were never in the same room together. Right, when Jim Carrey was actually playing him like on set and stuff, yeah. you mean? Yeah. But then he shows up later in the movie with after after Andy Kaufman dies, and you're like, what? I thought you were, huh? Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so, now you have to go watch that. We'll wait. 
No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, right after those redactions, it continues uh, with WikiLeaks releasing Podesta's stolen emails less than an hour after the U.S. media outlet released video considered damaging to Trump. Uh, The yes, uh, I'm going to assume that's the access Hollywood grab by the pussy tape. Mm -hmm. Uh, We will get heavy into those details um, in Section 3. So the question for me is, why did the Mueller probe end if it if it didn't seem to be finished yet? And who now is looking into these things? When we get to the referrals, let's count some of those unresolved cases and call one of them this potential additional Russian hacking indictment for trying to get into Hillary's deleted emails right after Trump asked the Russians to mm-hmm. do it. That could still be an ongoing investigation. Those are just beans. And when I say beans, I'm ga- it means I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Um, you can listen to episode 24 of the main episode with Dallas McLaughlin to find out what beans means. Or <laughs> go on our FAQ at MullerSheWrote.com. Yes, what does beans means? <laughs> I could have probably explained it to you in that time I told you where to go find it. But nah, this is fun. <laughs> a little scavenger you, hunt for now beans. you have a mystery. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you guys don't have anything else to do tonight. <laughs> right, right. Just a little homework assignment for you. <laughs> All right, guys, we'll be right back. Hey, guys, this is AG, and I am officially obsessed with Third Love. Not just because it's co-founded by a woman or that they're disrupting the old way of shopping for bras or because their ads feature real women with real bodies and curves and rolls and tattoos and piercings. But these are the best fitting bras I've ever owned because they actually use millions of measurements from real women to design their bras with the best size and shape in mind for your perfect fit. Um, They are the industry leader with more than 70 sizes and they have half cup sizes because half of women fall between cups like me. And they're super convenient because their Fit Finder quiz takes less than a minute, and I don't have to go to the store, have the lady chase me around with a tape measure, and then shove me in a room with a box of 50 bras that never quite fit right. Over uh, 12 million women have taken this quiz to date, and they take into account a lot of problems that, that you might have with your current bras by identifying the correct cup shape that you might not have considered when you purchased your other bra that might not even exist. Uh, Whether you tend to experience like spillage or digging straps, they ask you all those questions and then they recommend your perfect bra for you. And they have a 100% fit guarantee with easy and free returns and exchanges, which is really convenient. These are hands down the most comfortable, tagless, smooth, breathable bras I own and I know you'll love them. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering you 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash report to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash report for 15% off today. You'll be glad you did. Hello, welcome back. We are moving on and uh, we get a summary of Russian contacts with the Trump campaign. (laughs) In this section, which is 8 million pages long. No, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to summarize the contacts with the Trump campaign in Russia, but it opens up by saying the hacking operations coincided with a bunch of contacts with the Trump campaign uh, officials and Russians. And that's interesting to me because no longer are we talking about two wholly disconnected events in the hacking and the Russian meetings, right? Mueller connects the two. He says they're coincided because, of, as we've said all along, this was a coordinated attempt. And while Mueller, the Mueller investigation did not have the criminal link to that coordination, he he does say here with confidence that the Russian contacts uh, within the Trump campaign coincided with the hacking operation. And those words are important. If Mueller was just trying to say these things happened around the same time but had nothing to do with each other, I feel like he would have used a different word, like they occurred simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Coincided says something important here. And I think the words, you know, he's, he's a super deliberate fella. So he says, quote, the Russian contacts consisted of business connections, offers of assistance to the campaign, invitations for candidate Trump and Putin to meet in person invitations for campaign officials and representatives of the Russian government to meet, and policy positions seeking improved Russian relations. Hmm. 
In spring of 2016, Papadopoulos made contact with Mifsud, who uh, told him he had dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of emails, tens and thousands and dozens. Uh, it was that's what I'm just going to call it from now on. It was uh, May of 2016 uh, when he drunk bragged about it to Alexander Downer, and that's how this whole thing got started. Mm-hmm. That's how this whole crazy mess got started. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in summer 2016, we have the Trump Tower meeting. June, you know, the old June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. We've been talking about it forever. And Mueller said there was no dirt provided in this meeting, but that Trump Jr. anticipated receiving dirt. And days after that meeting is when the cybersecurity firm announced that the DNC was hacked and got access to the opposition research on Trump, among other documents. So that's one of those coinciding things that he thought was important to mention. Not just like, oh, here's what was sort of happening at the same time, interestingly and curiously enough. No, these are coincided events, right? Right. He could have, like, blocked them together in a separate way or something. Right, or just in a different timeline. Yeah. Um, it's it's not in the report, by the way, but that cybersecurity firm is CrowdStrike, uh, which we learned about in the book Russian Roulette by uh, Isakoff and Korn. And we also learned about it uh, early on in the Fusion GPS Glenn Simpson testimony transcripts. Remember those? Mm-hmm. You read those. They're great. They read like a spy novel if you get a chance. <laughs> um, then we have Carter Page's July 2016 trip to Moscow where he gave the keynote at the new economic school. Uh, the campaign then began distancing itself from Hat Boy and fired him in September of 2016. And while Page was receiving his or well, while Page was giving his speech over in Moscow, that's when WikiLeaks began releasing emails stolen by the GRU. Uh, within days, the U.S. intel agencies reported with high confidence it was Russia. And within a week, quote, a foreign government informed the FBI about its May 2016 interaction with Papadopoulos. Again, that's Australia, Alexander Downer, though that's not specifically stated here. We do know that, though, from other reporting now that we've covered in our other episodes. Right. That's why I'm filling in the blanks for you. Totally. Totally. They did kind of lag on that, too, a little bit on giving us those tips. Months. Couple months. Mm -hmm. But apparently Alexander Downer isn't the most uh, trustworthy politician in Australia. Yeah. I guess he has, like, a weird reputation (laughs) over there. (laughs) He's, like, kind of weird. And I think he's a funky guy. Yeah. Just a weird dude. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Like, laughable. Like a laughable fella. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and not in a good way. Peculiar. Yeah. Um, funny peculiar. Yeah, people are very surprised that he was like <clears throat> the beacon of tipping off U.S. intelligence. Right. We have him in our sexy justice calendar. People are like, don't put that weird guy <laughs> in your justice calendar. And I'm like, oh, all right. So I didn't know. Yeah. Now we know. And on the last day of July um, in 2016, based on the foreign government reporting, the FBI, is that's when they opened their investigation into Trump-Russia. So, and we got that whole timeline from McCabe too in his book and in his interview on our show a mm-hmm. couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. All right, then we have the August second meeting between Kalimnik, Konstantin Kalimnik, and Manafort in the cigar bar. I think in in the Devil Building, six sixty six Fifth Avenue. Mueller says during this meeting, Kalimnik delivered a peace plan for Ukraine that Manafort told prosecutors was a backdoor way for Russia to control part of the eastern Ukraine. Both men figured they would need Trump's assent. And they also discussed Trump's campaign strategy for winning Democratic votes in Midwestern states or stealing them. (laughs) Months before that, uh, months before the August 2nd meeting, Manafort had caused internal polling data to be shared with Kalimnik. That's an interesting way to phrase that. (laughs) Yes. And we now know why he phrased it that way, uh, because this is uh, Gates. uh, he, He instructed Gates to share the polling data with Kalimnik. Uh, remember when Gates came forward with this information during the Manafort trial, 
he said, I might have some exculpatory information. And he gave it to Mueller and Mueller handed it over to the judge. And the judge said when she was trying to decide if uh, Manafort breached his plea agreement or not. And the judge was like, this doesn't fucking make a difference. <laughs> Basically, what said, what happened was instead, I think in I think what Mueller was asserting to the judge was that Manafort shared the internal polling data with Kalimnik. And Gates was like, oh, no, 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 no. Manafort had me do that. And he was like, oh, OK. And so he told the judge and they're yeah. like, yeah, he's just he's still he still lied. Orchestrated. <laughs> yeah. Lied and orchestrated. <laughs> right? Like this doesn't get you off the hook but good good call for getting me the truth and that's that's specifically what that is judge ruled the information again had no impact on that ruling that manafort <laughs> breached his plea agreement but um that's why the wording seems weird here manafort had caused internal polling data to be shared with kalimnik um after the election many russians tried to make inroads with trump including kirill Dmitriev, the ceo of the russian sovereign wealth fund who is the guy who met with Eric Prince in the Seychelles. Mm -hmm. Then we learned something we did not know. I did not know this, at least, and I hadn't reported on it, and we hadn't done that on the show. That doesn't mean somebody else didn't know. Uh, That Dmitriev was introduced to a friend of Kushner that wasn't part of the campaign, and Kushner's pal and Dmitriev wrote up a reconciliation plan for Russia and the United States that ended up in Kushner's hands, who then gave it to uh, Bannon and Rex Tillerson. That's such bullshit, too, because Kushner wanted to be the foreign diplomacy guy, and then he just got his friend to do it and was like, look what I did. <laughs> Gives it to <laughs> took all the credit. <laughs> I hate those fuckers that do that. It reminds me of I'm watching Bad Men again, and like he takes everyone's ideas and gets yes. paid for it. Mm-hmm. And Fuck Peggy's him. like, well, how about you just tell thank you, say thank you to me? And he's like, that's what the money's for. <laughs> Maybe Kushner paid this guy. Uh, the report doesn't say his name, but we know it because we're smart and awesome. Uh, this guy's name is Rick Gerson. It's actually part of public reporting. <laughs> we just picked it up. But uh, Rick Gerson, I don't know if you remember this, but we added him to the fantasy indictment draft in June of 2018, a year ago, when we reported that Mueller was investigating Gerson for his contact with MBZ prior to the Seychelles meeting with Nader, Prince, and Dmitriev. Mm. He was also at the uh, mid-December meeting at the Four Seasons in New York with Kushner, MBZ, Nader, Flynn, and Bannon. Dude. He's a good person to keep on that league. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is true. Rick Gerson. Hmm. All right. Maybe. It kind of seems like one of those things that would have come and gone already, but who knows? Yeah. It, and that meeting wasn't brought up in the Mueller report, at least not in this part. Yeah. Uh, then December 29th, uh, after the election, Obama imposed the sanctions for election malfeasance, and Flynn called Kislyak, the Russian ambassador, and said, hey, don't do anything. Uh, we'll take care of this. And the next day, Putin says he wasn't going to retaliate. And Trump tweeted it out saying, great move on delay by V. Putin. I always knew he was smart. God, no one needs his first initial. V. Putin sounds like... Very Putin. Sounds like <laughs> vagina. It sounds like, it sounds like a euphemism for my... Yeah, ha. yeah. Like my V. Putin. Uh, and the next day, Kislyak... V. Putin out. <laughs> Sorry, that took half a second too long. <laughs> I, it's worth it. <laughs> Sometimes it does. Uh, and then and then the next day, uh, Kislyak called Flynn back and told him his request was received at the highest levels of the Russian government, uh, Putin, because Putin chose not to react because of Flynn's phone call. Recently, um, the judge in the Flynn case has ordered that the transcripts of those calls be released to the public by May 31st. Um, today is May 22nd, 2019, in case you're listening 30 years from now. Uh, along with uh, also he's going to release redacted portions of the Mueller report that involve Flynn and the Dowd voicemail to Flynn. Uh, Trump's lawyer called Flynn, left a voicemail dangling a pardon and, and trying to get him to lie to Congress or to Mueller. Uh, so far, there's no objections to that ruling. So mm, we got nine days to see what happens. Um, we move on to page eight now in the Mueller report with a brief timeline of the subsequent events, including that in January of 2017, 
after he took office. Uh, the Intel community, actually, I think it was right before he took office, the Intel community, or IC, briefed Trump on a joint assessment between the CIA, FBI, and NSA, and they had concluded with high confidence that Russia intervened in our elections to help Trump and harm Clinton, and a declassified version of that report was released the same day. To put this into context, we've heard probably a zillion times that 17 intelligence agencies reached the same conclusion, which isn't quite the case. Uh, the NSA, CIA, and FBI reached this conclusion, and the rest of the intelligence agencies did not dispute it. Most of those other intelligence agencies don't even like look into this Do stuff. That, yeah. It would be like the airplane intelligence agency or the, <laughs> or the or, or, sorry, Air Force. <laughs> yeah. Navy has the airplanes. <laughs> Air Force has chairs. Okay. <laughs> and then from me, sorry, love you guys. Love the Air Force. <laughs> Uh, hoo yeah, that's Navy. I don't know what you do. Does the Air Force have a, a noise? You don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking Space a plane. Like, yeah. Spaceman goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> like that helicopter we had go over earlier. That's that's their noise. Uh, all right. So anyway, sorry. Hmm. Then from mid-January to mid-February, the HIPSI, that's the Senate Select Committee. Uh, the HIPSI is the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HPSCI. And the SISI, the Senate Committee on Select Committee on Intelligence, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and the Senate Judiciary Committee announced they would uh, conduct inquiries or had already begun to look into Russian interference. Comey later confirmed to Congress the existence of the FBI's investigation into Trump Russia that had begun before the election with the Australian call about Papadopoulos. Mm -hmm. On March 20th, 2017, Comey said in an open session before HIPSI, um, I have been authorized by the Department of Justice to confirm that the FBI... Uh, as part of our counterintelligence mission, is investigating the Russian government's efforts to interfere in the 2016 presidential election. And that includes investigating the nature of any links between individuals associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government, and whether there was any coordination between the campaign and Russia's efforts. Uh, as with any counterintelligence investigation, this will also include an assessment of whether any crimes were committed. The baby introduction to an investigation <laughs> by <clears throat> Comey there. And this is interesting because right now we don't know where that counterintelligence investigation went. And we know that Mueller's criminal investigation was very narrow. But Comey says here, as with any counterintelligence investigation, this will also include an assessment of whether any crimes were committed. So there could be other crimes um, outlined in the counterintelligence report that have not been charged or discussed or even known about. Yeah. Because Mueller's, Mueller's scope was very narrow. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. Uh, this is an important prepared statement because Comey uh, says that the investigation into coordination and conspiracy was not simply a criminal one. It was um, the criminal investigation to determine if the coordination and conspiracy with Russia rose to the level of illicit criminal activity able to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. What is not in this report, at least as we can see so far, is any of the counterintelligence portion of the investigation into coordination and conspiracy uh, between the campaign and Russia. But we know from public reporting and information that we've gathered from experts, along with information gleaned from this report, that counterintelligence investigation went on alongside the criminal investigation conducted by Mueller. And again, that counterintelligence information was gathered by FBI agents. And we currently don't know where it is, except today, Adam Schiff, head of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, which is this where, where Comey was testifying when he said this, uh, made a deal with uh, Attorney General Barr that uh, Barr is going to start handing over counterintelligence investigation information related to the Mueller investigation uh, in exchange for not being held in contempt. <laughs> so the threat of contempt worked, so he canceled the vote today to hold Barr in contempt, and uh, the Department of Justice said, we'll, hand, we'll start handing, we'll see what they hand over. 
Right. We'll see how redacted it is, but he's going to start handing over that counterintelligence information to Schiff. Well, because the question is still yet to be answered if it's even done or not yet, or like who, which parts have been handed off to who, if any, and then, yeah, how that would even, what map that would even look like. Yeah, I have it's it's such a mystery. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when, And when I spoke to McCabe, he's like, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> and I opened it. Like he would say anything That's if true. he knew. But I figure he would probably say, AG, I can't tell you that, you know, yeah. but he's yeah. like, dude, I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's true. such a cool dude. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's see here. According to the NBC reporting on April 19th, uh, the NBC, according to the NBC, you kids listen to these days, um, the FBI and other intelligence agencies are still pursuing a counterintelligence effort to thwart the Russian influence operations into 2020 interference. Some key aspects of the counterintelligence inquiry, such as the FBI warning the Trump campaign about Russian interference and the campaign not contacting law enforcement, is missing from the Mueller report. It also doesn't talk about the firing of Comey or other acts of obstruction as counterintelligence issues. It does. It talks about them as obstruction issues, but not national security issues, because we know firing Comey, which kind of inhibited the FBI from investigating Mm -hmm is a national security and therefore a counterintelligence issue. Yeah. Uh, The volume one summary then goes on to tell us that May 9th, 2017, Comey was fired by Trump. And that action is analyzed in volume two. Comey's firing came seven weeks into his investigation of Trump Russia. And eight days later, Snoop Dagg, that's who we call the deputy attorney general Rosenstein, uh, appointed special counsel Robert Mueller and authorized him to investigate what Comey was looking into, as well as matters arising directly from that investigation. And uh, other matters within the scope of 28 CFR Section 600.4A, which generally covers obstruction. Shout um, out to Andrew McCabe for playing a huge role in that as well. Definitely. Just so when this goes down in history, everyone oh. knows that McCabe was the boy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah McCabe had several meetings with Rosenstein mm-hmm. about this um, particular thing. And Rosenstein's, what the fuck do I do? He fired Comey. And McCabe's like, got to gotta get a special counsel, man. You got to get a special counsel. Mm-hmm. Kept poking at him, kept poking at him. Finally, he's like, all right, I'm going to do a special counsel. Hey, everyone. <laughs> I had a great idea all by myself. I'm going to get a special counsel. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> CFR, 28 CFR section 604.604A. That's the CFR code, Code of Federal Regulations, Governing Special Counsel, and the specific sections listed outlines their jurisdiction. So you can read that if you want. It's real juicy. Mullet is not. Mueller <laughs> says Trump reacted negatively uh, to the appointment of special counsel and said it was the end of his presidency. <laughs> he said, oh, damn it. I think his, I think his actual quote was, uh, I'm fucked. Yeah, it was definitely <laughs> that. Uh, he sought to have Sessions unrecuse himself and fire Mueller. He engaged in efforts to stop the investigation and prevent the disclosure of evidence to it. And that's all outlined in volume two. We are now at the bottom of page eight. That whole time, that whole middle section took, was page eight. Um, and this is where the report summarizes Mueller's charging decisions. And he begins by defining what a crime is and what standards he used to determine whether or not to charge anyone with a crime. And they're very high standards. First, he had to determine if the conduct broke federal criminal law chargeable under the principles of federal prosecution as outlined in the justice manual. Then Mueller describes for us the standards set forth in the manual to determine if something is a crime. And if it is... Is the uh, admissible evidence probably sufficient to obtain and sustain a conviction? And finally, whether prosecuting the crime would serve a substantial federal interest that couldn't be satisfied elsewhere or by non-criminal alternatives. Impeachment. (laughs) Uh, Mueller reminds us that uh, Section 5 of the Mueller report provides detailed explanations of the charging decisions, uh, which contain three components. Number one, Mueller says 
Two principal interference operations by Russia violated the law. Number two, while Mueller identified numerous links between Russia and the Trump campaign, the evidence was not sufficient to support criminal charges of conspiracy. Uh, But Mueller does go on to be a little more specific, saying that, among other things, the evidence wasn't sufficient to charge any campaign official under the Foreign Agents Registration Act and uh, that the evidence about the June 2016 Trump Tower meeting and WikiLeaks release of hacked materials was not sufficient to charge criminal campaign finance violations. Finally, the evidence was not sufficient to charge that any Trump people conspired with Russia to interfere in the 2016 election. So that could leave room for counterintelligence information relating to the coordination and conspiracy surrounding WikiLeaks and also the the Trump Tower meeting, because only campaign finance violations are mentioned here specifically. But that should be something Congress should ask Mueller when he testifies. So the third component of charging decisions is that Mueller established several Trump aides lied to him and to Congress about their interactions with Russians and related matters, and those lies materially impaired the investigation of Russian interference. Uh, And here's where I want to bring something up. It was discussed uh, a while back that collusion could be the obstruction when it came to light that firing Comey, while it's traditional obstruction, uh, could also be seen as counterintelligence national security matter because his firing would have made the investigation into interference difficult. That poses a national security threat. We just sort of mentioned that a minute ago. Here, too, where Mueller says that the lies told by Trump associates impaired his investigation into Russian interference uh, and could pose a national security threat. Perhaps that's in the counterintelligence report. And we haven't seen it, mm-hmm. that the people who lied to Mueller are, pose a national security threat and is a counterintelligence problem. And that could we might be able to see that if we ever get any of the counterintelligence stuff, which I don't know if the public will ever see it. Yeah, that would make me feel a little bit better and sleep a little bit better at night to know that they can't just lie and then get away with it, essentially, with no follow up actions. But realistically, that's probably not what it was. Yeah, And they're still walking around. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, they haven't been nabbed. Yeah, that's true. God, I wish they just arrested them all and just were like, just hang out in this tank for a second while we figure this out. Yeah, and Americans are like, why'd they get arrested? And like, we can't tell you. Yeah. (laughs) It's not. Don't worry about it. Mm -hmm. It's a secret. They look suspicious. Yeah, totally. And then and, and you, Mueller actually goes on to say he charged some of those lies as violations, right? Mm-hmm. So he did charge some people. We know that, too. Yeah. Uh, under 1001, which is the false statement statute. Yeah, that's um, true. That's how he got a lot of plea deals. Flynn pleaded guilty to lying about his interactions with Kislyak during the transition. Papadopoulos pleaded guilty as, uh, as well about lying about Mifsud. And Cohen pleaded guilty for false statements about Trump Tower Moscow. Um, then, of course, he talks about Manafort's lies, but only after there's a redacted bit because of harm to an open and ongoing investigation. And since it comes after Cohen lies and before Manafort lies, perhaps this redacted part has to do with someone else lying about Trump Tower. Uh, We both know Don Jr. did that. So, Mm -hmm. And we know Felix Sater did too, but Felix Sater's an FBI informant. He actually helped us catch bin Laden. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting, complex guy. Yeah. So uh, he lied to Congress, but I don't know if Congress was in on it or if it's still illegal to lie to Congress. You asked this question the other day, like, can you could you lie to Congress just because you helped get bin Laden? Like, you get one lie. (laughs) You're like, oh, that's just what he does. He lies. But he also talks. (laughs) Either that or this is an entire new lie. We haven't even seen a prosecution for it. It could be uh, information about Flynn's lies, which are still a matter of an ongoing investigation. Uh, particularly as they uh, in regards with to Stone, mm-hmm. so you know, and he'll be part of that trial coming up in November. Uh, on to page ten here, where the special counsel's office says they investigated several other events we've talked about and uh, found that uh, interactions between Trump and 
the Trump people in Kislyak at the April 2016 foreign policy speech and then again at the RNC, the Republican National Convention, were non-substantive. Uh, same goes for the passing meeting between Sessions and Kislyak in Senate Sessions, uh, in Senate, in Sessions Senate office. <laughs> Sessions, Seychelles. It's hard to say. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is where uh, in in the beginning in our uh, opening sequence where he's I did not uh, I did not have relations relations <laughs> with the Russians. I got it. I know I confuse yeah. it with Clinton. I did not have sexual yeah, relations. Yeah, yeah. I the was Russians. a surrogate at a time or two, and I did not have communications with the Russians. Yeah, but you nice. know what? He, say, he actually said I didn't not. Oh. He stumbled and said I didn't not have communications with the Russians. Was and it that intentional? Might have gotten him off the hook. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> right? He's probably trained about for that. that. But, you know, that he had that sort of pass-by meeting at that whatever, I can't remember if it was the prayer breakfast or some Mayflower. prayer breakfast, ironically, yeah. Mayflower, some dumb shit heathens. meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and he, like, sort of, pa- I just bumped into Kislyak. I did not have conversations. Uh, they determined it wasn't substantive. Yeah. Uh, then there's a weird sentence. I'm, I'm going to read it verbatim. It says, quote, and the investigation did not establish that one campaign official's efforts to dilute a portion of the Republican Party platform on providing assistance to Ukraine were undertaken at the behest of candidate Trump or Russia. It's a bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Basically, it says the investigation did not establish that one dude didn't have an effect on the RNC platform. And uh, I think it's interesting that he says one campaign official's efforts to change the platform at the RNC were not undertaken at the behest of Trump or Putin, which sort of indicates that someone else's efforts were uh, undertaken at the behest of Trump or Putin. Uh, And official, you know, officials undertaken at their behest seems deliberate. So someone should, like, first of all, put some beans on it and two, ask Mueller about it. Mm -hmm. Who was... Who's the one? This one guy didn't. Who's the? Is there another dude? Another mm-hmm. lady? Who did it? What's yeah. up? <laughs> That's just a weird sentence. And it's not, it doesn't explain it. Maybe it does later in the report, but I don't remember. Yeah, it is weird. It's very different in tone from the rest of it. Yeah. It should say no officials made any changes. Mm-hmm. Just says one guy. Uh, then he goes on to tell us that uh, lots of Trump's people invoked the Fifth Amendment and were not appropriate candidates to grant immunity to. Um, Mueller says he, uh, I mean, the reason he says that is because once you grant immunity to somebody, they aren't allowed to plead the fifth. Mm. So these, these are guys who didn't deserve immunity, but pleaded the fifth. Uh, Mueller says he limited his pursuit of other witnesses and information. Uh, says, I, yeah, he, he limited his pursuit of other witnesses and information. So some of the intel was covered by privilege. This is sort of the like when you do a dissertation, you have your limitations on, you know, your your data and what, you know, you're, you're drawing a conclusion. But here's the limits. I only talked to six people, really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what what he's saying here is we had people plead the fifth. We had people lie to me. Um, some of the intelligence was covered by privilege. Some was screened by investigators, um, by a taint team to see if it was covered by privilege. Sometimes witnesses provided false or incomplete information, which led to uh, some of the false statements charges mentioned earlier. And, of course, the office couldn't always get witnesses or documents like from abroad or overseas. So this section, again, is mostly him telling you everything that limited his ability to get evidence. And uh, I think it's important that he pointed this out, not only because, I mean, you should always point out what your limitations are in any investigation and the results, but it could have impacted whether or not he was able to get that final piece to, to link criminal conspiracy at that level needed to prosecute. Yeah, I appreciate him including those details. Yeah, me too. Uh, and the next paragraph will piss you off because it pissed me off. 
And I want to know uh, what couldn't be corroborated because of this bullshit. Basically, Mueller couldn't corroborate some evidence because people either deleted, encrypted, or used temporary messenger apps to communicate. So Mueller, quote, couldn't corroborate witness statements through comparison to contemporaneous communications or fully question witnesses about statements that appeared inconsistent with other known facts. Uh, and that right there says that there's some shit that people got away with because they tampered with evidence and, and he couldn't prove it and he couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. That sucks. Damn. Uh, and Mueller even says so, quote, while this report is accurate and complete to the greatest extent possible, given these identified gaps, the office cannot rule out the possibility that the unavailable information would shed additional light on or cast new light. Sorry, cast in a new light the events described in this report. He's basically saying, I can't say that there weren't crimes or, yeah. or that there were because there's gaps in the evidence, even though even though I'm good. He's like, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Yeah. So psychic can't read minds. You know, if they lie to him, they lie. Yeah, that's a great sentence. It's a little weirded word. It's weirdly worded, (laughs) which I can't even say. It's a weird thing to say. Yeah, yeah. While this report is accurate and complete to the greatest extent possible, given these gaps, the office cannot rule out the possibility that the unavailable information would shed additional light on or cast in a new light the events described in the report. Boom. Way to write a sentence. (laughs) Um, On to page 11 in uh, section Roman numeral one. In volume one, entitled The Special Counsel's Investigation, basically outlines when and by whom and under what authority Mueller was appointed. It then gives uh, and defines the scope of the investigation with policy citations and gives the Snoop Dagg clarifications, Rosenstein's clarifications, and his two subsequent memos. This is the fuck off section. <laughs> yeah, this like, is the get one. Get off we, my back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, here's why I get to do this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the August 2nd, 2017 memo for the public that Rosenstein wrote is the one that outlined Mueller's authorization to investigate. Page, Manafort, and Papadopoulos, uh, and if they committed a crime or crimes by colluding with the Russian government uh, officials. And you know what's interesting is when this, when this memo first came out, the word collusion was in there, and I was like, oh, look, they used the word collusion. Haha, so collusion is a crime. And now I'm wondering if Rosenstein didn't use that word on purpose. Exactly, because I don't trust him. And now that Mueller's coming out saying that they were never considering it by definition, collusion. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder why he would say that from the jump. He and must he have said known. That, and he said that too earlier. He's like, even though Rosenstein used this word in his memo, it's not a legal word. It's yeah. almost like, why the fuck did you do that, exactly. man? Exactly. Who do you work for? But I think, and I think it's a, ref, uh, it's something Asherangapa calls reflexive control. It's an active measure used by Russians where you change the definitions of words so that you can screw people over later. Wow. Uh, and and collusion is one of those words. And this could have been purposefully planted by Putin and his team. Oh, that would explain um, a lot because Rosenstein during that press conference with Barr was like a robot. So he's a sleeper agent. That would totally explain it. <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. I'm like, why did you put collusion in there if that's not a crime? But he did. Crimes of collusion. Um, it also went on to discuss uh, Mueller's scope regarding Manafort and crimes arising from payments he got working for Ukraine, along with the loans he got from that guy he promised a job to in the Trump White House. Remember that guy? <laughs> we had beans on that guy. Uh, but then it says Mueller should investigate allegations that Papadopoulos was acting as an unregistered agent of Israel. And that's new to us, mm-hmm. uh, along with uh, four sets of allegations about Flynn. Uh, so that's what was under those redacted bits in the Snoop Dagg memo. Interesting. I'm excited to hear more about that Israel stuff. I know. I, what? Like, Overtime. Israel. Yeah. Huh. Uh, and because I, wasn't PSYOPs out of Israel? Yeah. Actually, Ukraine, I want to say. 
No, oh, I think no, Psyops right. was Israeli. Yeah, and they just or compromised. Black you're right. Black Cube, Black Cube is Israeli, and they compromised Ukraine um, that's systems. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And they totally were trying right. to use Black Cube to do some of the internet um, social media campaigns. Yeah. And Zamel totally. uh, was part of that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's Israeli. He's an Israeli. Sketch as fuck. Or is he Qatar? No. Uh, Pretty sure he's Israeli. He's Israeli. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al Amanhi is the, from the Qatar Investment Authority. So maybe that's it. Papadopoulos had something to do with Black Cube and, and Zamel. Mm. I don't know. Those are beans. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> then there was the October 20th memo, which confirmed Mueller's investigative authority to include Cohen, Gates, Redacted, <laughs> Stone and redacted. Nice. Uh, it recognized Mueller's authority to look into Cohen and his establishment and use the essential consultants to receive funds from Russian-backed entities. It also allowed Mueller... It, it handed that off, though. It also allowed Mueller to see if anyone uh, was working with any of these guys, including Manafort. And finally, the memo described an FBI investigation opened before Mueller's appointment into whether Sessions lied to the Senate. And it allowed Mueller to look into that, too. And apparently hmm. he concluded he did not. Uh, let's see. Gates, Cohen, Gates, redacted, Stone, and redacted. <laughs> I don't know. Assange? Um, I, we could guess It's like all Wheel day. of Fortune. Yeah. It is. Yeah, just spin the Wheel of Criminals. <laughs> and like to solve the puzzle. Wheel of Criminals. <laughs> <laughs> wheel of Misfortune. <laughs> just literally spinning on a wheel. <laughs> just in handcuffs. Just, yeah, you know. just put them up there. <laughs> Uh, the report then says that because Mueller had the full authority of a U.S. attorney, uh, that he would be privy to any FBI evidence already gathered. And since the FBI had been on this for 10 months, Mueller got a significant amount of evidence right off the bat, just boxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says that the office finished the investigation into links in coordination with Russia, but that certain proceedings associated with Mueller remain ongoing. And that those have been transferred to other components of the Department of Justice and FBI. And Appendix D lists those transfers. Uh, what would be transferred back to the FBI besides counterintelligence stuff, hmm. I wonder? Probably just, probably just the counterintelligence stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then the report describes that Mueller hired 19 attorneys, five from private practice, 14 on detail, along with 40 FBI agents they were co-located with. Uh, then they give all the numbers that you hear Trump say over and over again. The numbers break down 2,800 subpoenas, 500 warrants, 230 requests for records, 50 pen registers, 13 requests for foreign governments. Uh, and 500 witnesses, including 80 for the grand jury. Yeah. Where, where's the priceless joke in there? I don't know. <laughs> What's the punchline? And the grand jury is still convened, just so you know. I think they're up in June. Uh, finally, Mueller describes the relationship to the FBI counterintelligence division and once again makes clear that this report does not contain those findings. Still searching for that. <laughs> um, quote, from its, from its inception, the office recognized that its investigation could identify foreign intelligence and counterintelligence info relevant to the FBI's broader national security mission. So basically he's saying we had a bunch of FBI guys sitting in the office with us and whenever something counterintelligence would come up, they would catch it, put it in their pocket <laughs> and uh, <laughs> smile. No, then they would write, <laughs> give written briefs to the FBI or Department mm-hmm. of Justice as needed. Um, send it back to FBI headquarters and the field offices. Uh, those communications and other correspondence between the office and the FBI contain information derived from the investigation, not all of which is contained in this volume. This volume is a summary. It contains, uh, in the office's judgment, the information necessary to account for the special counsel's prosecution and declination decisions and to describe the investigation's main factual results. So there's a lot that's not in this report. Uh, but guys, that's part one.
Muller She Wrote is written and produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media. Sound design and engineering are by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter and our art and web designer by Joel Reeder at Moxie Design Studios. Muller She Wrote is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. They might be giants that have been on the road for too long. Too long. And they might be giants aren't even sorry. Not even sorry. And audiences like the shows too much. Too much. And now they might be giants are playing their breakthrough album, Flood. All of it. And they still have time for other songs. They're fooling around. Who can stop They Might Be Giants and their liberal rock agenda? Who? No one. This ad was paid for with somebody else's money. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.